Sinful anger is a universal problem, meaning everybody does it. For many people, it's the most recurring sin pattern in their lives. It's easier to be harsh than kind, to uncharitably judge than think the best, to shut people down than build people up. For the individual who does not want to stay stuck in sinful anger, the number one key to overcoming this habit is seeing yourself correctly. Like all of our sinful patterns, if we don't place the log carefully in our eyes, we will never successfully work through any of our anger problems, any that we may have. Having correct biblical vision is the perfect starting point. Hello, everyone. This is Rick Thomas. You're listening to Life Over Coffee. Thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. Also, if you want to read what I'm about to share with you, I have a full article. It's 2,000 plus words on our website. You can read it, reflect upon it, share it with all of your friends. And then, of course, if you want to watch this podcast, you're welcome to do that because I'm doing a video, and so you can watch, you can read, and you can listen. The title of this podcast is, When You Get Angry, Do You See Yourself Correctly? James called anger a war within. We see that in James 4, verses 1, 2, and 3. He says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And then he continues in verses 2 and 3. Now, thankfully, there is a Redeemer who has the power to reverse the curse of our collective fallenness. Jesus also gave us some helpful advice that cuts to the heart of anger, that war within. Well, he did it in his double-edged way, of course. He not only gave us the cause of anger, but he provided the solution when he asked this question in Matthew 7, verses 3, 4, and 5. These are the words of the Savior. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but does not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, hey, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. When I meet with couples for marriage counseling, occasionally I will share with them Jesus' advice right here in, in Matthew 7, and then I will ask each one of the partners, who has the log and who has the speck in their marriage? Their answers are always instructive. I met a couple planning to get married once upon a time, and I told them that if they could correctly identify the log and speck persons in their relationship, they would have an amazingly wonderful marriage. Of course, if they get the log and speck reversed, their marriage will fast track to dysfunction. Which brings us to the all-important question for this podcast, how about you? Think about your relationships. I mean, maybe to jazz things up, 
pick the most challenging person in your life. I hope it's not me. And from your perspective, who has the log and who has the speck in that relationship? When I asked the soon-to-be-married guy, He gave the correct answer. He said that he's the one with the log in his eye, from his perspective, of course. And then when I asked the soon-to-be-married bride, well, she gave the correct answer, too. Praise God. She disagreed with her boyfriend. The log was firmly planted in her eye. If their pre-marriage answers are post-marriage realities, they will experience a beautiful marriage. Perhaps I can illustrate what Jesus is teaching us in Matthew 7 this way. In this fictional dialogue, the speck person says, Why aren't you angry with me? I hurt you. I offended you. I've done you wrong. The log person says, I killed Christ. I put Jesus on the cross. Yes, you did hurt me, but I can forgive you. I want to show similar mercy that Christ has shown to me. That's why I'm not sinfully angry with you. Your offense does not compare to my offense against God. There is a log stuck in my eye. How can I, all I can see from where I am sitting is the speck in your eye. Like Paul, the log person, never forgets where God found him. And though Paul did not wallow in or exalt his sin, his awareness of where he came from gave him a humble perspective toward others. Paul said it this way in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I am the one who has the log in his eye. And so with Paul's humble perspective toward others, especially those who were annoying him, it gave him the advantage to be able to help them. Paul's attitude toward others, it really complemented the master in Jesus's story in Matthew 18. Paul knew his debt was massive and God forgave him. Paul put Christ on the tree. If you're like Paul, if I'm like Paul, and not like the master's wicked servant in Matthew 18, then you see yourself correctly, and you will find the help that you need. Let me share with you verses 32 and 33 in Matthew 18. You remember the the whole story. The whole story is of uh, the man who was forgiven this massive debt by his master, and then he went out and started beating up this fellow who owed far less than what this guy owed the master. When his master heard about this, he summoned him and he said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all of that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? 
Part of the war within that James talked about in James chapter 4 is the complexity of interrelated fears and shame and guilt that churns inside the angry person. You see, the angry man is a sad man. I mean, he is a reckless man, of course, but did you know the angry man is probably a scared man too? You see, most sinful anger is born out of insecurity. He is fearful that he will not get what he wants, so he uses anger as a manipulative means to make sure he satisfies his craving heart. This fear-centered reaction was the first twisted outpouring from Adam's heart shortly after he chose not to do things God's way. After we move from trusting God to trusting ourselves, we become the functional God over our lives. After we decide to do things our way, we will walk away from the Lord, as Adam did, which is a precarious posture for living well in God's world. In fact, you can't live well in God's world if you choose to walk away from him. Relying on yourself rather than relying on the Lord is not for the weakling. You see, it's hard to be the functional God over your life. Have you ever tried being God of your life? I have, sadly. God did not build us to do his job. We cannot control all outcomes, which is why anger becomes a go-to tool in the arsenal of the weak individual who rejects God's rule over his life. It is perverted power, anger is, to accomplish an unaccomplishable task. The habituated angry person typically learns this self-centered worldview early in his life. Perhaps as a child, he figured out how to manipulate his parents by using childish anger to bend the parents to fill his craving heart. Maybe his parents resisted, which was his cue to stiffen his will and double down his effort. His unmet desire, this this fear, morphed into a pouting demand. Read manipulation here. And that is the pivotal moment in the parent-child relationship. If they cave to his idolatrous demands, they will find it harder to resist him in the future. This kind of parental capitulation to a child's will will shape him to become a functional God of his universe. He has now learned how to get what he wants. He can be God for a day, a week, a month, a life. Rather than orienting his heart toward the Lord, they, they set the child on the throne of his heart and on the throne of the family. Their home becomes child-centered. The kid's twisted mind and self-centered deductions convince him that he is the sole judge of how things ought to be. I mean, somebody has to be God. So his youthful arrogance dupes him into believing he is the only one worthy of that mantle. Now let's index forward 20 years. He's an adult. 
The angry man is a bigger version of the kid sitting on the floor, throwing a tantrum, manipulating others to get what he wants. It's the same anger, amplified, born out of a similar insecurity, fear. His unbridled, Adamic nature has now morphed into a habit, a way of life, though amplified more than his childish habits. He may be a Christian. But he brought his former manner of life into his Christian experience, as Paul taught us in Ephesians 4, 22. Anger is the familiar portal that permits him to access his desires. He can satiate his insecurity by manipulating others through anger because he rejects God. He is the functional God over his life. There is a thin line between making demands out of episodic fear and making demands out of deeply trenched habituations. A child not parented well will learn how to satiate his fears through anger. It will become his habituation if he continues down that path. As you look back on his life, you will see how his habituated anger has worked for him, and I put work in air quotes. There will be a string of broken relationships that his anger has carved up. God's that parents help create will never be cooperating gods or cooperating idols. Those so-called gods will devastate relationships and incarcerate souls. But there will be a twist of irony to his sinful anger. He appears to be strong. He appears to be in charge. His bellowing convinces you of his power. The truth is that the angry man is weak. The angry man is broken. The angry man is insecure, as I was saying earlier. I mean, for example, to blow up at someone takes no strength. The angry person is a weak slave to habituated patterns of his own making. It takes a lot of strength to submit yourself to the power of the Holy Spirit while walking under his influence and under his control. The angry person never learns this lesson from the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. You remember in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And though the angry person has human power, anger, he does not have that higher power, the Spirit's power that controls his human power. The book of Proverbs gives us insight regarding this lack of spiritual power over our human power problem. In Proverbs 16.32, it says, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Do you hear in that verse how the person who is slow to anger has more power than the mighty? In Proverbs 14, 29, it says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, and he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. And then in 29, 22, we, we read this, A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes many transgressions. The angry individual is weaker than he realizes. 
The person who is slow to anger is submitting his human power to the strength of the Spirit. Fallen Adamic anger needs God's power to harness it. If not, it will pour over the dam of our hearts and hurt people. Let me illustrate this by uh, talking about the fire hydrant. Imagine the cap of a fire hydrant popping off. The cap would be weaker than the force of the water. If the cap could withstand the pressure of the water, it would be stronger than the force of the water. In such a case, to be sinfully angry is to be without God or without the cap, which makes this kind of person dangerous. Ultimately, the angry man shows his lack of submission to the Holy Spirit, the only one who can manage him while speaking peace into his heart. Now, Proverbs twenty-two twenty-four says this, Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man. Now, if you are associated with an angry person, a sinfully angry person, as I have been uh, describing here, be careful. 22-24 is important. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, because he is not submitted to God. He is living under another authority, this functional God that he has erected and submitted himself to. Do not try to help the angry person by yourself. The person habituated in sinful anger is not under the influence of the Spirit of God. They are without God, at least functionally. Because God opposes proud hearts. I'm describing a proud person here. And in James 4, 7, when it says God opposes the proud, it means there is a warring army arrayed against this person. This person has a significant issue with God, and God is an arrayed army against him. You want to be careful in your association with him. It would be a fool's mission to go alone, trying to stop the angry person from being angry. They need a community of soul care providers. The Bible's synonym in, in Proverbs fourteen twenty nine. you remember, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a harsh temper exalts folly. And so the Bible's synonym in Proverbs 14, 29 that describes the angry man is, is folly. And so anger and or the angry man and folly are connected. The word folly represents the actions of the angry person. He commits folly. The behavior of folly comes from the heart of a fool. A fool commits folly. By his fruit, you shall know him. His behaviors reveal his heart, who he is, a fool. Jesus taught us that words originate from the heart in Luke 6, 45. If the words are foolish, the heart is folly, and the person is a fool. The angry person the habituated angry person is a fool, and you would be wise not to interact with them alone. Remember, this person is his functional God. They do not play by God's rules. 
You would be right to make your appeals. Yeah, make your appeals. Be that good neighbor. But if those requests fall on the hardened ground of an angry, foolish heart, you must talk to the spiritual authorities in your life, calling to them to help you. This is the essence of Matthew 18, chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Now, if you are submitted to this angry authority, I recognize this, and I know that there are many wives that will watch this video on YouTube, they will listen to the podcast, they will read this article, and they will ask the question, so I don't want to skirt around it. If the angry person has limited authority over you, recognize that he has broken the first commandment. The first commandment, which you uh, see in Exodus 20, verse number three, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, the angry person has broken that commandment. He is his functional God because he is rejecting God. Now, I say if the angry person has limited authority over you, if it's a husband-wife relationship and the husband is the habituated, sinfully angry person, a husband has limited authority over a wife, not absolute authority. No, you, uh, a, a, the only person who has absolute authority over us is God Almighty, there is no person that has absolute authority over another individual. There are hierarchies. Uh, there are authoritative structures. There are civil authorities, governmental authorities, uh, academic authorities. There are familial authorities with the husband and, and parents. There are vocational career authorities like employer, employee. Those hierarchies make our society function well when those authorities are are acting as they suppose as they should but all of those authorities that i have described including the husband is a limited authority and if this limited authority is breaking the first commandment by rejecting god uh, we shall obey god more than man which means this person is functionally disqualified from lead, leading you now this could be a husband wife authoritative structure, hierarchy, but it can also be in the local church where a pastor is an authoritative, heavy-handed person who is not walking in humility, which is another way of saying he's a habituated, angry person. He, too, has limited authority, not total, absolute authority over you. And if this person does not submit to God— but functionally sets himself up as a god, you are not to follow fools blindly. Remember, the synonym to this habituated angry person is a fool. There is a mutual and reciprocal requirement on the authority figures to lead and love those well. Those that are submitted to him or them, they are to lead and love well. And if the authority over you is not leading or loving you well, then you must help them to change, recognizing the limitations of that responsibility. The best way you can accomplish this is, is by trying to get them help. 
It's okay to go, like for a wife, to go over her head, to go over her authority to get help. She does not submit to him in everything, meaning when he is sinning. It would be the height of unkindness to refrain from seeking to help a person like this. You see, the angry person is in a deep well from which he cannot extricate himself. He can't lead you well as long as an angry heart has captured him. There must be a divine rescue, and perhaps you and others and others can be God's means of grace to help this person. It would be wise to treat anger, habituated anger like what I am describing, as an addiction. It is a learned habit born out of a fearful, craving, Adamic nature. We want to do all that we can to live in harmony with others. And I am not suggesting that you can change him. You can water, you can plant, but you cannot give the growth. Maybe God will use you to bring repentance to this individual, as we read in, in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, that, that perhaps God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth in verse 25 of 2 Timothy chapter 2. The angry individual is so elevated in his mind that he cannot see the entanglements in his heart. Christ is the only solution, but seeing the Savior is hard from such a lofty perch. The title of this podcast is, When You Get Angry, Do You See Yourself Clearly? I trust that there will be many angry people that will, will see this video or listen to the podcast, or read the article, and and they will seek help. This is a a problem that that we find we find all of us, all of us have been in that deep hole, uh, at least episodically. And I'm making a distinction between episodic sinful anger and a pattern of sinful anger. If you have episodically been angry, then confess it, own it, confess it to God, and confess it to anyone within your sphere of influence that you have offended, that you have sinned against, and be clean. Be, be, may that sin be removed from you so it doesn't create a pattern. But if it is a pattern in your life, then uh, the hole is deeper and the incarceration has more power over you. And so with these things in mind, I have a call to action at the end of this article. And again, if you're on our website, uh, please go to uh, this article titled, When You Get Angry, Do You See Yourself Correctly? You can listen to the podcast. You can watch the video embedded in the article. I also have an infographic here inside this article. And then the call to action. And of course, you can print the article off and, and draw it up and mark it up and put notes all over it. And of course, it would be an excellent tool in, in any kind of relational 
personal context, whether it's husband and wife, a, a, a family with children, or a small group, or a couple of friends in a coffee shop. But here's a few questions as I wrap up this podcast. Question one, why does a person choose self-reliance over God-reliance? Perhaps you can describe a time in your life when the temptation to rely on yourself was strong. Remember the story of the little kid who wanted something. He was afraid he was not going to get it, so he chose to rely on himself by getting angry at his parents to manipulate him and and manipulate them, and then he learned that it worked, and so that's where the habituation began for him. He was afraid. The angry man is a weak, fearful man. He, He learned a manipulative tactic anger to accomplish what he wants. What I'm describing here is self-reliance. I have a one-hour webinar on our website. I would love for you to watch it. It's a free webinar. I would love for you to watch it that really breaks down this construct of self-reliance because anger is a self-reliant construct. Why does the why does a person choose self-reliance over God-reliance? Number two, What does it mean to submit your power to God's power? We have power, but we want to submit that power to God's power. That is a definition of self-control. When you submit your power to God's power, you're not weak, but you're submitted to God's power. Now you're operating in self-control. When your power is submitted to God's power, When our power is not, and we are quenching and grieving the Spirit of God, now we are the functional God in our lives, and that is a a bad place to be. What does it mean to submit your power to God's power? Why is this the wisest way to live? Number three, what are at least two shaping influences that would teach a child how to manipulate others through anger. Give some time reflecting on this, especially for those of you who are parents. Think about what it means to cave to a manipulating child. Think about your own fear of man. What is controlling you that motivates you to want to give in to that child? Think about what it can cause long-term in a child's life. I have three other questions here, but you can pick them up on the article. The article is in the description of the video. If you have any questions for us, please come to our website and ask. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.